One of the most devastating consequences of alcoholism is the development of liver disease. For some of these individuals, they require a liver transplant to survive. On this episode of Through the Trees, we sit down with the University of Colorado liver transplant team, specifically Dr. Whitney Jackson and Dr. Stephen Hewitt. As Colorado is one of the premier national locations for transplant medicine, this podcast will shed light on some of the complex variables involved in receiving a new liver, ranging from scientific factors to bioethics. Addiction treatment healthcare is vast territory, much of it having yet to be fully charted. It also is a field with some of the most passionate and interesting of clinicians. Each week, we walk the addiction treatment trails, learning from experts of all backgrounds and specialties. My name is Pat Failing, and I'm an addiction psychiatrist for CEDAR in the University of Colorado. You're listening to Through the Trees, the CEDAR Addiction Treatment Podcast. Well, this is Dr. Pat Failing, and I'm very happy today to be on our Through the Trees podcast. I'm sitting down with the University of Colorado Hospital transplant team. And specifically, we're talking about the world of transplant medicine and also how this interweaves with a big thing that we'll see with our patients or at Cedar, which is people who have liver disease, specifically liver disease connected to alcoholism. So I'm joined on the podcast today by Dr. Stephen Hewitt, who's a yes. psychologist Hello. with our team, and also Dr. Whitney Jackson, who is a hepatologist for the university. And uh, thank you so much for sitting down with us. And I think this is going to be pretty fun. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for having us. Can we start a little bit uh, talking about the background? What's uh, a little bit of what is a transplant uh, and a little bit of the the history that's involved in transplant medicine? Sure. Um, So I am a liver doctor, hepatologist. So I take care of people who have liver disease. Um, People can have liver disease for a variety of reasons, not just um, alcohol use disorder. Um, Other common reasons people can have liver disease include viral hepatitis or autoimmune diseases. Um, Part of my job is to assess how sick somebody is due to their liver disease and when and if they would benefit from a transplant. Um, Once somebody gets to a point where we think that they have cirrhosis and decompensation from their cirrhosis, that could include jaundice, ascites, confusion called hepatic encephalopathy, or liver cancer, um, we decide to put them through an evaluation process. That evaluation process involves a multidisciplinary team and um, a thorough assessment of somebody's physical status if they're strong enough to undergo and survive a transplant. So assessing their heart, their lungs, their physical strength. Um, But also that evaluation includes a psychiatric assessment for substance abuse and psychiatric illness or adjustment disorders that may reduce their likelihood of um, having successful outcomes from a transplant and social work evaluation to assess their social network and support system. Um, And then once somebody is listed for transplant, um, we are really addressing how they're going to get a transplant. You know, um, unfortunately, we do have an organ shortage in this country and there is um, more demand than there is supply. So 
20% of our patients will actually die or get too sick waiting for a transplant each year. Um, and that's when we start to discuss with them, should we continue to try to keep them as healthy as we can while we wait for an organ to become available, or should we start to look into um, the option of a live donor liver transplant? But that's just a little bit of background about um, how the transplant process works. So if I'm hearing you right, about one out of five people who is kind of cleared through the process and deemed a good candidate for a liver will pass away before they even can get one. Yes, or be removed from the list because they become too ill, which usually means that you're deconditioned and more frail. Give us some bulk numbers. How many transplants does does the university do every year? So I'll tell you nationally, there are about 14,000 people on the liver transplant wait list. Um, About 8,000 people get transplanted each year. The University of Colorado uh, historically does about 100 liver transplants each year. This year we are um, on track to do somewhere around 150 and 160. So we've really increased our numbers through the past year. And so those are approximate numbers. Sure. Can you expand a little bit on the history of this? Like when was the first liver transplant completed? Actually, Colorado has a really interesting special history and relationship to uh, liver transplantation. So Thomas Startzel is the famous liver transplant surgeon um, who uh, performed the first successful liver transplant in 1967. And he actually was at the University of Colorado for the beginning of his career. He later moved on to Pittsburgh to grow the world's largest transplant program. And he's really the father of transplantation. So he has a connection to most of the surgeons who have been trained to be liver transplant surgeons. So for example, he trained Egal Kam, who was our chief of transplant here for many years. And now Egal has retired and stepped down. And Dr. Elizabeth Pomfret is our chief of uh, liver transplantation. And she is the most experienced live donor surgeon in the, in the country. Um, the first successful adult to adult live donor liver transplant transplant actually took place here. Wow, so very fascinating. So it sounds like uh, Colorado specifically has a pretty strong pedigree in this world of transplant medicine. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, very interesting. So it turns out Dr. Thomas Startzel was a pretty big deal. At the University of Colorado, he was responsible for the first liver transplantation in 1963, although the early recipients didn't survive from the procedure. In 1967, he performed the first successful liver transplant, with the recipient living over a year. Startzel was most innovative in his use of immunosuppressive medications, specifically cyclosporin, to prevent the recipient's body from rejecting the new liver. In 1996, Dr. Elizabeth Pomfret, also at the University of Colorado, completed the first transplant from a living liver donor to a recipient. This is where the donor only gives a portion of his or her liver, and the portion grows over time within the recipient. Based on Colorado's experience as liver transplantation pioneers, I knew I was in the right place to learn more. So there is a, a large liver transplant list, and is I was curious a little bit of how this works and also how it is scored. There is uh, something called a MELD score, I know. Can, mm-hmm. can you... 
tell us and help us understand how how does somebody move up or down the list and how does it work? Right. Um, allocation is based on severity of disease. Um, and in, um, in the past, liver transplant was based and all, all trans- organ transplant was based on time accrued on the wait list, right? Um, but then the national government decided that it should be based on medical urgency instead of wait times. And so there was a proposal to use this MELD score that had historically been used to predict three-month mortality. And the MELD score takes into account a few things. It takes into account your bilirubin. Bilirubin is a breakdown product of red blood cells. Your liver is responsible for the metabolism and getting rid of that. So if your bilirubin goes up, you're more sick. It takes into account your INR. So your liver is responsible for making clotting factors in the body. If your INR is going up, then you're not, your liver's not working as well. And it also takes into account your kidney function and your sodium, because we know that um, mortality and liver disease is highly um, linked to uh, kidney function also. So the MELD score goes from six, which is normal, your MELD score is six, um, to 40, which is the highest. Um, And um, once you are approved for transplant, meaning that we think that the benefits of transplant outweigh the risks for you, you are put on the quote-unquote wait list. That means that you are um, on a waiting list that's based on your blood type and based on your MELD score. So as an organ becomes available, it goes to the highest MELD score first. And um, so as you become better or more sick over time, you could really fluctuate in terms of where you are on that list. And it also depends on how sick the other people are in the area. Uh, I know we're here in Denver and Colorado. If somebody were to require a new liver in Colorado, would they be getting a Colorado residence liver or could it be from anywhere around the country? Yeah, it could potentially be from anywhere in the country. UNOS, the United Network for Organ Sharing, is the um, national organization who um, has uh, determined how organs are allocated and distributed. If you have a high MELD score in your area and an organ becomes available, um, that organ would preferentially go to you because you're the first person on the list, potentially. However, if an organ is available and there's nobody very sick in an area to take that organ, that organ may be offered to people in larger and larger circles through the country. So it might travel quite far, actually. After a liver is procured, let's say from a motorcycle accident or or something, how long before it often is implanted in a recipient? That probably depends mostly on a couple things. Number one, how far away is the organ? So how far is it going to have to travel? And number two, um, what other organs are being procured from that uh, deceased donor? So uh, typically the heart is procured, for example, before the liver is. And so we might have to wait a while before we are able to procure that organ. Generally, I would say we have organs back at the center within probably 10 hours or less. Or 10, okay. So uh, tell us a little bit about the process. And I know, uh, uh, Dr. Hewitt, so you're involved in appraising somebody who might be a good or or not so good candidate to receive a liver? Yeah, so uh, my training is as a clinical psychologist and I could get a referral from somebody on the liver transplant team 
for any reason. Um, and I also work with the, the living donor team, uh, people who are seeking to donate their liver. And I evaluate all of those people as well. With, uh, with respect to the liver transplant though, usually most of the cases that I'm seeing are people who have an alcohol-related liver disease, typically alcoholic cirrhosis. And um, what I do is I conduct um, a clinical interview where I go through and try to understand uh, their disease process, how their liver disease emerged, uh, how that related to their drinking, and what steps they took at the time that they found out that they had a liver disease, uh, which oftentimes uh, is the first time that they've, when they, the first time that they've discovered that they have a liver disease might be the first time that they've ever really stopped drinking for any length of time. Uh, however, there's also a lot of cases where people find out that they have liver disease and they persist uh, with their drinking for months or years and their disease worsens and worsens until they get to the point where they have no option except to receive a liver transplant if they're going to survive. And so my primary focus is trying to understand the role of addiction because anyone who's coming in for a liver transplant due to an alcohol-related liver disease has two conditions. They have alcoholic cirrhosis or alcoholic hepatitis, and they also have an alcohol use disorder. And the transplant team is very expert and incredibly thorough and completely equipped to take that person all the way through the transplant process. And we have a tremendous amount of resources to manage people post-transplant. But a transplant team is not an addiction service. And the, the, uh, the alcohol use disorder is still there, even if the person has stopped drinking, it's still there after they've received a liver transplant. And most people are very, well, anyone who's uh, been able to be listed and gone through the process has demonstrated that they understand the relationship between their addiction and the development of their liver disease. And they've taken steps to, to address their alcohol use problems. They've gone to treatment programs. They um, attend support groups. They've made a lot of significant changes. And those changes have helped them to maintain their sobriety. Uh, so anyone that has received a liver transplant um, has demonstrated that to get onto the list. And it's really important that there are ways to continue to help them after transplant so that when or if they continue to have issues like cravings or difficulty coping with stress, or uh, especially when people have a co-occurring psychiatric problem such as depression or severe anxiety or an eating disorder where they've used alcohol to, um, to self-medicate, that they are getting into treatment to address those issues so they're not falling back on what had previously been their main way of handling and coping with these issues. Experience the compassionate care of CEDAR, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation. Located at the University of Colorado Hospital, we manage complex health needs in addition to addiction. To learn more, visit cedarcolorado.org. So it sounds like you cannot just 
sign yourself up to be on the list. You have to be cleared by your service. It's a very thorough process. Yeah, Yeah, I would use the word risk stratified because um, that's actually something um, where our weakness really lies is our ability to provide thorough mental health services to everybody in this country. And so we are left with trying to assess and predict who is able to stop drinking and able to stay abstinent, who is able to comply with um, health care to take care of their liver after transplant, and who is low risk of recidivism and going back to drinking again. And that's an imperfect science that we're still working on. Uh, Stephen, I know you alluded to that a little bit based on when somebody heard that they were starting to have health problems from their drinking, mm-hmm. then what happened? So did they did their drinking keep living pretty strong, or did yes, they exactly. get sober because they, they realized the writing's on the wall? That's probably two very different yeah. people. And I, well, and it's, so there's, there's a couple different pieces, um, because when somebody finds out that they have alcoholic cirrhosis, usually they have become very, very sick, and they have been drinking very actively, sometimes in really astonishing quantities, you know, amounts that if any other person drank that amount, it would probably kill them from, from alcohol toxicity. For sure. Um, that's not always the case, but it's, it can often be the case. So by the time they get that sick where they're hospitalized, their, uh, their liver is so decompensated that it can no longer metabolize and break down alcohol. And so any drink they take is making them very ill which essentially um, undercuts the reward pathway of drinking. And so if a person has been drinking for years and years as a way of maintaining, um, you know, this, the reward pathway in the brain that gets set off when people drink, if that is undercut by becoming very, very ill, uh, it effectively becomes an incentive for that person not to drink because they just can't take it anymore. Based on what we're talking about, receiving a liver is quite precious. You obviously you want to predict the best outcome as possible. You want the best candidates who are both going to be able to stay sober and value the liver, and also people who I imagine are have a good chance of surviving the operation and the procedure and things like that. Dr. Jackson, can, can you comment on that a little bit? I would say the main criteria that we have in terms of um, alcohol use history and determining somebody's psychosocial appropriateness for transplant should be an assessment um, of if a patient is at risk of returning to harmful drinking after transplantation. And it's really the characteristics of like the patient's insights, their social support, their duration of sobriety. Historically, most transplant centers have followed a six-month rule of sobriety prior to listing somebody for transplant, and that is based on a historical experience or a, or a value that people placed um, that perhaps observing somebody's sobriety over time would be able to, they would be able to demonstrate that insight and have less likelihood of drinking later on. There's really no evidence to back up a six-month rule, and actually most transplant centers are no longer following a six-month rule. And instead what we're doing is we are really relying on people like Stephen or our social workers who are able to assess 
other risk factors. So when I talk to you, do you have good insight into your history? Have you relapsed multiple times despite the proper support around you? Um, and we're trying to use some of those factors instead. Yeah. And um, so when I do an evaluation with somebody, the main thing that I'm trying to do is increase the amount of information, the amount of data on this person about their behavioral health history and using that to try to get a really clear sense of what the main issues are that this person has been struggling with. Because if you can really clearly see those, then you can start to make recommendations about how we might be able to uh, address them and that that person can make progress with finding healthier, more adaptive ways of, of mm-hmm. handling those kinds of problems. And so in addition to the interview that I do with people, we also do, um, we do psychological evaluations. And my background, or a big part of my background, has been in psychodiagnostic assessments. And so using uh, both um, objective and um, projective assessment tools to get a really extensive uh, picture of this person's um, overall psychological functioning and to do uh, a full psychiatric assessment of kind of the range of various forms of psychopathology that might be manifesting. And what's been really nice about being on the transplant team is that most of the time that I had done this, it had been in um, inpatient settings every now and then for, um, you know, an outpatient mental health clinic where there was some sort of request or need for psychodiagnostic testing. But psychodiagnostic testing within psychology has become more and more of a lost art just because there aren't that many occasions where... Uh, even though it might be nice and really fascinating to have somebody go through a full psychodiagnostic battery and get a sense of their personality functioning and all of those things, ultimately, unless somebody's going to pay for that privately, you know, insurance companies tend to not pay for it. And um, the the value of the recommendations is usually not that much um, additive on top of you know, whatever general recommendations you can make even without the assessment. But that's different on transplant because on transplant, you're making, you're trying to make accurate predictions. And in order to make predictions, you need accurate data. Mm -hmm. And so some of the best data that we can get comes from psychological tests. And so when I um, give somebody a variety of psychodiagnostic measures, and then I take that with the clinical interview information, and I go through their chart, and I look at their history, I'm able to get a really thorough picture of what's been going on with this person? You know, how do we understand the nature of their addiction? When there are psychiatric issues, how do we see the relationship between the psychiatric issues and um, the the substance use behaviors? And what kind of treatment is needed? How are they going to have success? Because if somebody has a co-occurring diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder or major depression, or post-traumatic stress or an eating disorder, along with their alcohol use disorder, all of those suggest different types of treatment, uh, different kinds of therapies. And depending on the severity of the disorder, it might also re- um, suggest a different level of, uh, of care. You know, does a person need residential uh, dual diagnosis? Can they do intensive outpatient? Is it happen to be somebody who could handle once weekly therapy and that would be sufficient? But all of those things are really important in order to uh, properly manage um, the combined uh, addiction and psychiatric issues. Sometimes we make uh, your job pretty difficult, though, I would say. <laughs> um, so one example of that is just kind of the spectrum of alcohol-related liver disease that we see. Um 
most commonly we see people who have had um, a history of alcohol use disorder. They have cirrhosis and they have decompensated liver disease with time. Generally speaking, those are patients who we're able to see and assess in clinic and have some time to get to know them. There is also on that spectrum of liver disease, something called alcoholic hepatitis, where in a short period of time, somebody has drank so much alcohol that their liver becomes extremely inflamed. They become extremely ill and jaundiced, and um, they have a very high likelihood of mortality in the, in the next three months. Those patients often are in the hospital, confused, not able to communicate easily, possibly on dialysis. And it's not just Stephen's job to do this. It's really like a multidisciplinary team assessment. Um, But it can be very challenging to try to get all the components of somebody's history and, um, and their coping mechanisms and really learn about them when they are that sick. Sure. And so we come, we, we're really faced with a lot of difficult situations sometimes where we're asking you to go see an inpatient and you kind of have limited resources to make really hard decisions. And like time is of the essence, I guess. This person's Absolutely. in an intensive care unit. They're, yeah. They're, they very well may not Absolutely. be able to leave the hospital. You know, it's either um, they get a transplant or they don't survive. Um, and so with the alcoholic hepatitis cases, they are uh, much more complex and Uh, In some ways, it's not possible to even do a full evaluation for some of these patients for a couple of reasons. Um, A lot of times when I go and meet with these patients, like Whitney was saying, they can be really encephalopathic. uh, They're having a lot of cognitive problems. They're disoriented. They don't know where they are, when it is, who they are, why why they are where they are. Um, Oftentimes, they're having memory issues they can be hallucinating. Uh, they're basically not really connected to reality. They're not comprehending things. Any information that they give can't really be treated as, um, as definitely valid and reliable. Um, so that's a huge issue. Another thing that I've faced um, a number of times is that the, the alcoholic hepatitis cases can show up with people who have been really secretive about their drinking and this is maybe the first time that something really problematic has happened around their addiction. And so they've never had the benefit of having sought treatment in the past. And one of the things that I use to determine um, how a person is going to deal with their addiction and how well they'll you know, make progress in treatment is, you know, how did they respond to prior treatment? Or if we have the time luxury, put them in treatment have them get started and see how they do and collaborate with their therapists and their other providers at a, at a clinic. Um, but if you have somebody who's uh, become cognitively impaired, their family didn't know that they were drinking this much and they've never been in treatment, all of a sudden there's really few resource resources that can be drawn upon to try to say, well, how likely is this person to take the appropriate steps to address and make progress with their with their addiction issue because you just don't know you just can't tell because that information isn't there so the, if i'm hearing you guys right there's a couple different ways that somebody who has an alcohol problem might require a new liver one is more chronic disease and cirrhosis that's what scar tissue mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. liver and then we're also talking about an acute 
overload to the body. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's the alcoholic hepatitis. Yes, and we have a lot less experience with alcoholic hepatitis because of that six-month rule historically, right? So those patients didn't even used to get to us to consider them for a transplant. Um, Now that we don't necessarily follow a six-month rule, it's opened this window to question. So many patients with alcoholic hepatitis, first of all, will recover over time. But it's the few that aren't recovering and could die that might benefit from a transplant. And there's this landmark case in the New England Journal of Medicine that looked at early transplant for alcoholic hepatitis. And in patients who were extremely carefully selected, and by carefully selected we mean um, we think that they had a low risk of recidivism after transplant, um, those patients actually had excellent outcomes with the transplant. That paper in particular used one major um, assessment tool to uh, figure out their risk of recidivism, and that was had that patient ever had any intervention where they were told they should not drink alcohol. And it was the patients who had never had any intervention with the medical system, had never been told they were drinking too much, had never had a negative consequence of their alcohol use, where they were learning that at the time of transplant that seemed to have the best outcomes. Oh, interesting. So almost if you approached somebody as a blank slate and gave them a chance to recover, a good percentage of people did. Mm-hmm. They really, they, they saw the gravity of the situation and they stopped drinking and they got a good outcome. But I do think it has to be stressed that liver transplant for alcoholic hepatitis is really the exception and not the rule. That those patients are classically very challenging to assess. And generally, they have interacted with the medical system in a way where they knew not to drink. And um, they weren't able to change some of those coping mechanisms that were driving their addiction. And so it remains just... um, really a tool that we use for highly selected patients who we think are going to do well afterwards. All right, time for a crash course in bioethics. What are the core ethical principles? Number one, autonomy. This principle essentially involves an individual's freedom to choose for themselves. This is overall the most sacred ethical principle in the area of health. Number two, beneficence doing good by the patient, or thinking in the patient's best interest. Number three, non-malfeasance, essentially do no harm. And number four, justice, what is fair and good for the community or society at large? This principle seems to be the most valid when we're talking about liver transplants, but let's hear what the team has to say about this topic. I imagine the, the world of transplant medicine has a lot of ethical principles at play. The biggest issue is this idea of supply and demand. So just the fact that in transplant you are living in a world um, where we have an organ shortage. So we have more demand than we have supply of. And if we lived in a different world where there were you know, an organ for anybody that needed it, we wouldn't even have to have such an extensive evaluation process because we could take a lot more risk. Um, But just the fact that we have this organ shortage, we essentially become stewards of these organs and we have to really assess and discuss 
who, which patients are going to take good care of an organ afterwards. And that's really important, I think, for our population to know how thorough we are. And I have um, a bit of background with um, ethics, and I find a lot of the issues that, um, that get confronted in the realm of transplant really interesting um, because uh, I think that fundamentally transplant is a, a thoroughly ethical process because while medically you can look at all kinds of scenarios, you know, you have a disease, right? And then you have all these scenarios of you know, how you might be able to treat um, or cure it. And you could come up with a lot of ways of, you know, we can do this. And that's not what ethics is concerned with. Um, ethics is concerned with, um, ought we to do this? Is this good? Is this right? Is it, a, is it appropriate for us to do this? And, um, you know, if we were able to, uh, you know, simply grow a new liver in a lab, pretty much all of the ethical issues that we deal with would just go away. The ethical issues are there because a person is getting an organ either from someone who has died or from a living donor. And so someone is giving their tissue to save the life of another person. And so, you know, ethics aren't, um, they're not like the laws of physics. They're not written somewhere. It's, it's uh, regulated by society. And so as, as a society, uh, what we um, feel and the way we operate is that there's a, you know, a tremendous uh, respect or, uh, or sanctity or a value that can't be quantified uh, on receiving an organ and for someone's, you know, life to be able to persist because that um, donation process has taken place. My guess is there are probably myths and misconceptions around this. Um, sometimes if you hear in the news that a, a famous person received a liver transplant for somebody who had alcoholism, I know that sometimes people might think, oh, did this person's status or fame or money bump them to the top of the list for the, these organ transplant lists? Is that, is that true? Does any of that play out? in our country? or I think that's a valid concern of the general population. Um, I believe that transplant is really regulated in our country in terms of um, the allocation process and the distribution process, but certainly there's just so much gray in our decision making. I'm not surprised that people would be concerned about how your status plays into something. I do think that all the transplant centers are highly vetted. Um, you know, for us to exist, we need such a large infrastructure, such a large multidisciplinary team, and everybody has a voice at that table. So if one person at the table was ever skewed or influenced by something, there's just so many other people at that table that are acting as checks and balances from that ethical perspective, I believe. Sure. So you actually you provide some safety and some ethical protection by just having a lot of diversity, a lot of diversity, yeah. a lot of different people, a lot of players involved. So if I was a patient coming in and needed a transplant, I think something important to know is that there are multiple transplant centers through the country. And, and how many? Do you know how, about how many are there? About 100. Okay. Um. And each center has different expertise and experience. So one center that does 20 liver transplants a year may not be able to take the same risks in terms of 
you know, say that you have coexisting cardiac disease, like you're more risk of a heart attack after your transplant, or you um, are a bit more psychosocial risk, like perhaps you were just a, a more moderate risk of recidivism. Some, some centers can take a little bit more risk in terms of transplanting somebody. And so I do think it's important to know there's variability to this also and some gray areas. So if one of my patients need a transplant and we think that they're too high risk here, sometimes I'll think about, you know, do you have family somewhere else in the country where we should send you to talk to a different transplant center and see if they have a second opinion, which honestly is something that we do commonly in medicine anyway, is get second opinions. Um, But that's just one way that we're always trying to advocate for our patients. This is actually fascinating because it blends in with our world of addiction care. We... We know that people really recover through healthcare and having resources around them. And I mm-hmm. and so hence somebody who has alcoholism in the Denver metro area, there's a lot of available services to help them recover compared to rural Colorado where there might not be nearly Absolutely. so many options. So yeah. almost like that's a risk risk mitigation layer. To mm-hmm. somebody who might be local, and I wonder, does this get a does this get brought into your assessments? Of, Absolutely, yeah, that's all, all the time. that's a lot of our social workers' assessment. So, for you to be a transplant candidate, you're going to get sick while you wait. You're going to need somebody to drive you back and forth to the hospital. You're going to need to get to the hospital when we call you for a transplant. So. That is absolutely part of the evaluation process is, um, you know, can we take care of you? Like, are, will you be close enough? Sure. So a lot of, a lot of practical assessment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we do take care of people in many states surrounding us, um, but it requires extra attention to detail. Yeah, because not just before, but even after transplant, these people are going to have to continue taking their medications. They're going to have to have follow-up appointments. So how far somebody lives from uh, a medical center that can provide that service for them is a really critical issue. And if they have, uh, if they have an alcohol-related uh, liver disease or if they have a co-occurring psychiatric issue, we want that to be mm-hmm. addressed as well. And I'm sure I mean, you know that um, the shortage of psychiatrists in rural areas is, is, a, is a crisis. I mean, there's so many people who are in need of psychiatric services in rural areas and just the mm-hmm. availability of it isn't there. And so this is just sort of one subset of that bigger issue. I always joke with patients, but I'm serious that for better or worse, you're married to me after this. So if something happens to your labs, if I'm worried about you, I'm going to call you and you're going to have to come back to the hospital Mm -hmm. and we need to check in on you. Yeah. And another thing that I do, um, you know, I do the evaluations, but I also tell people that in a sense, I'm their, I'm their psychologist. I'm not um, a treating psychologist, but I'm, I'm kind of a managing psychologist. Um, I am connected with the team. I know what's going on medically with them. And anytime there's any sort of disruption in their life or some other uh, you know, behavioral health issue that crops up, uh, I kind of help serve as a, as a liaison between them and different entities so that, the, the, so that there's some degree of uh, you know, continued connection and oversight with those issues also. Mm-hmm. Sure. Now, I know we focused uh, heavily on drinking. Are you guys also involved in transplantation assessment for uh, injection drug use, people who uh, develop hepatitis C, uh, oh, absolutely. things like that? Yes. What, um, do you, what do you see? 
Well, um, viral hepatitis is one of the most common causes of liver disease in the United States. The most common reason that people have a viral hepatitis is due to injection drug use. Um, it is a requirement for you to be evaluated for transplant and listed for you to be abstinent from alcohol and drugs. So um, that's absolutely something that we need to assess during that evaluation process also. One of the things that I, that I focus on in that, in that pre-transplant period is making sure that uh, any given patient gets connected with really good professional services. And so for injection drug users especially, there's a very high likelihood that they're going to benefit from some sort of maintenance therapy like Suboxone uh, to help them maintain their sobriety. And once they're connected there, um, we can uh, you know, get permission for different you know, centers or clinics to communicate uh, with each other uh, when the patient allows us to. And that way we can work together to make sure that this person's addiction is being managed well. Now, viral hepatitis is really a different ball game, though, than alcoholic liver disease because um, when you have a virus, we are exceedingly rarely needing to evaluate somebody for transplant in an acute flare of their viral hepatitis. Almost always, it is because they've had that virus for many, many, many years and it's caused cirrhosis over time. And so, or, usually, or cancer, or I mean, cancer or exactly. Absolutely. But it's just that. Almost always, these patients have already had time to deal with their drug use history, whereas alcoholic liver disease, it's often still an active problem when we're seeing these patients. Okay. Okay, so that's good to know. Um, you had mentioned, you know, um, common myths or misconceptions. One thing that I just wanted to emphasize, if it's okay, is just this idea of stigma of alcohol use disorder and the public perception of it. I think that historically alcoholic liver disease has been very controversial and patients um, may be underrepresented uh, because of a bias that they face. Um, they might be less likely to be referred for transplant due to ethical concerns of equity or utility of organs. Um, and also, um, I think there's a social stigma that alcohol use disorder might be a self-inflicted uh, etiology of liver disease. Um, but more and more, we are seeing that the public opinion is really changing on this, and we learn so much from our patients all the time. So more recent surveys of the public really show that um, their perception of alcohol use disorder is less negative, and they have a much more favorable opinion of the role of liver transplant in patients with alcohol, sure. alcoholic liver disease. Yeah, um, I would really agree with, uh, especially that part you mentioned, Whitney, uh, about have there being this view that it's somehow self-inflicted. Um, and I can't even tell you the number of times that I hear this, even from patients, mm -hmm. where they seem to hold that perspective. And at some point in my conversation with them, in my evaluation, uh, I expect that I'll probably hear uh, something along the lines of, I did this to myself. And while there's, you know, some sense in which that's technically true from, you know, looking at the main issue that they have um, is addiction. It's not, it's not as though anybody with an addiction wakes up every day and there's, you know, 
two buttons and one of them is, you know, get healthy and like live happily and have a good life or, you know, continue, um, you know, using something until I die. Uh, and there's a sense in which it's really out of their control and it has been out of their control. And this is, uh, really testifies to how out of control this has gotten for them that, you know, in any other situation, uh, you know, if something was harming us that bad, we would stop. But with addiction, people continue, even though it's harming them, that's addiction. There's a lot of education I think that needs to be done Mm -hmm. to change that perception that is really, really rooted that, you know, at base people are just really not trying hard enough. Um, you know, addiction is not restricted to any particular demographic or, uh, you know, or, or subset of society. I mean, addiction can show up anywhere, you know, any community, any, um, you know, income bracket, any race or ethnicity. It's not as though it's, you know, just, uh, you know, certain people. Uh, Dr. Jackson, you mentioned that in Colorado, you, uh, your team will do about 100, 150 transplants per year. What overall happens with these people when we follow them forward? How do they tend to do? People who undergo a liver transplant for alcoholic liver disease in general do excellent. Um, they have over 90% one-year survival, and um, they're doing equally as well as uh, people after transplant from other causes of liver disease. I think the thing that we always need to just remember is what Stephen said at the beginning, which is a liver transplant will cure alcoholic liver disease. It will not cure alcohol use disorder. And so those those patients really need special attention and special follow-up afterwards for their psychiatric conditions also. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I think that one of the things that I really hope to see over the coming years is just um, a steady uh, expanding of addiction services. Because I think that as a society, we've done a really, in general, we've done a, a pretty poor job uh, allocating an appropriate amount of resources for all uh, behavioral health issues. And that's especially the case for addiction. Um, you know, when you look at the amount of money historically that's been given um, for mental health issues, it's, it's a very, very small budget um, compared to a lot of other health issues. And then when you look at addiction specifically, it's a fraction of that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, I, when we see somebody who maybe, uh, you know, had an alcohol-related liver disease, they got transplanted, and if for whatever reason they had a bad outcome, one possible way of looking at this is, you know, with a shortage of, of resources, you know, what was the availability of continued support and care that they could get for their addiction after transplant because for their, um, for their transplant, they can continue coming to our clinic. Um, are they going to be able to continue going to some sort of behavioral health services and, and have somebody that can monitor and, you know, keep track of things and intervene early if necessary. Cause a lot of times it's more of an issue of things just progressively kind of getting worse. And then before you know it, you've ended up in territory you didn't intend to, and there's just been no one there to help sort of recognize that and pull people back into a safer spot. Well, so I want to thank you guys very much. I think that this radio show was really fascinating and it covers a lot of territory on a social component, a big medical issue, which is transplant medicine, specifically livers. 
And I want to thank uh, Dr. Whitney Jackson, hepatologist at the University of Colorado, and Dr. Stephen Hewitt, a psychologist on the transplant evaluation team. I'm Dr. Pat Failing here at uh, the Through the Trees podcast. Thank you so much, guys. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. Please visit cedarcolorado.org for a wide array of educational content about the disease of addiction and the science of recovery. If you or a loved one are considering Cedar and the University of Colorado Hospital for treatment, please speak with our admissions team at 720-848-3000. Cedar, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation. Helping people build a life of recovery.